You are listening to a podcast from The National. With every freedom referendum pursued, international agreement dropped and open border closed, the trend of an increasingly globalized world is suddenly reverting on itself. The world is shrinking. The Donald Trumps and the Theresa Mays of the world, countries are all of a sudden finding themselves surrounded by nations that are no longer willing to cooperate. Terms like global governance, open trade, and international cooperation no longer carry their weight as solutions to our problems. Nations are beginning to frame the problems as more internal and less manageable, and with that, their constituents feel that they don't have time for problems outside their borders. Instead of further committing themselves to globalization, countries are asking themselves, why should we care about what happens to the rest of the world? But then, another question arises. If countries are no longer willing to help each other out, then what becomes of our humanity? Without an integrated global system and the willingness to cooperate, the world will become increasingly more inept at facing issues of environmental disasters, widespread pandemics, or, in the case of Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, ethnic cleansing. This is what Queen Rania of Jordan had to say about it this week while she was visiting a refugee camp in Bangladesh. Before coming here, I had braced myself to witness some desperate conditions, but the stories I heard today were heartbreaking and harrowing. I've heard of systematic uh, rape, of young girls being trapped in schools and, and raped by soldiers. I've heard of babies uh, being kicked around like football and, 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 and stomped on. Uh, I've heard of family members telling me how they've seen their own parents being killed right before their eyes. This is something that is unacceptable. The Jordanian royal is in Bangladesh this week to help draw attention to the event that is seeing 600,000 refugees flee prosecution in Myanmar. She's asking for greater international support. But why is that even a question? Why are the acts against humanity being ignored? Queen Rania said perhaps the oppressed minority being Muslim has something to do with it. She said that perhaps if it were instead Muslims committing the heinous crimes, the international community's reaction might be different. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nasr al-Wesmi. And later in the show, we'll be looking into the sudden rise of youth delinquency in Oman and how the world's largest tech brand, Apple, is continuing to change the way we live. But first, we go to Bangladesh, where Fiona McGregor is on assignment for The National, covering one of the most neglected global crises of our day. You've been among the camp and talked to some of the refugees. Can you give us a bit of your impression on what it looks like? When you enter the camps, it's hard to um, see the, the full scale of, of how many people are actually living there because the, the shelters are, are crammed so close together. But when, when you reach higher points and you look out and, and literally as far as the eye can see, uh, all you can see is, is plastic roof shelters in, in which people are, are trying to live. Um, the, the spaces be- between the, them are, you know, there's, there's virtually no space and, and the ground um, is often very, very muddy. You know, the, the, the rains, the, the monsoon rains haven't come to an end. Um, and because the um, sanitary facilities are, are very poor, you know, you're getting all this mud churned up and, and sewage um, in amongst there, which is, is causing a lot of disease and um, health risks for people. In your story, you explain how an angry mob of around 300 men began harassing a woman moments after she spoke with Queen Rania. 
They said she had not raised the issue of Rohingya rights. Yes, that was quite shocking to see, and I think it just highlights the the tensions that are are within the the camp. Uh, I'm not sure how the the UN had had picked the the people that spoke to to the Queen, but um, what I saw um, standing outside the place where the, the the Queen had spoken to press was was suddenly this elderly looking woman walking past, and hundreds and hundreds of men following her and shouting you know something at her um i think speaking to you know men on the edge of the crowd and then to un representatives afterwards it appeared that anger had been sparked by the fact that she had not specifically raised the the issue of um rohingya rights i i think you know for for a lot of people arriving in the camps at the moment, their their first concern is is just to get food um, and and shelter and, and basic survival. Um, I think you know, particularly for for women, this is often the case. But obviously, there there are people in in the camps who have been living there for longer, um, or who are are sort of more caught up in the. Um, in, in the issue that, that you know that's what's happening to people is is because of oppression in Myanmar, and and I think they were um, angry that that this woman hadn't used the opportunity to to raise that side of things with with the Queen. This displacement of people, the violation of human rights, it's been called hell on earth, but the international community is completely overlooking it. So what what's going on exactly? I'm not sure the international community is completely overlooking it now, but I, I think what is concerning is that this is a, a crisis that's been building for years, and that action hasn't been taken, or stronger action hasn't been taken before now, which might have um, helped prevent this, you know, reaching the situation it's in at, at the moment. I, I think there um, has been a lot of um, inclination within certain as- aspects of the international community to keep on side with the, the Myanmar government and, and not pay attention before now to the, the really um, terrible human rights violations that were already being inflicted on the Rohingya population in Myanmar um, before the violence um, of August 25th and in, indeed before the, the earlier military rep- reprisals um, last October. So the question becomes, is aid political? We have countries in the region who have donated $30 million to hurricane relief to one of the wealthiest countries in the world, but haven't done more than send a few planes of blankets, food and medicine to Bangladesh. So do countries think aid is political? Absolutely, aid is political. Um, I think we should note that um, just yesterday, $344 million um, worth of um, donor pledges were were made um, in uh, following a meeting in the e, uh, in Geneva. It's to be hoped that those pledges are, are followed through on. Um, but yes, I think um, un- unquestionably because um, of you know wider perception of, of Muslim issues uh, across the the world that, that perhaps this this crisis hasn't uh, received the attention previously that it should have I think that's something uh, the Queen raised in her um, her speech yesterday um, I also think that you know what we're seeing happening here in, in Bangladesh the, the sheer 
scale of the, the numbers of, of people who have arrived and who have arrived so quickly. I mean, 600,000 people in, in two months. Um, that you, you know, that there has been um, quite a considerable response by um, major international organisations and um, organisations based in, in Bangladesh as well. I think that you know that's important not to forget that. Um, but you know. I think this is, the, is being perceived as the fastest growing refugee crisis in the world at the moment. So it, it needs you know, a huge amount of support. This brings the question of ideals. It almost doesn't feel like aid or helping out nations is a question of protecting human rights. It almost feels like relief is about exerting influence, almost like a, a favor that countries expect to be remembered and paid back. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's certainly one view of, of how aid in, in general can work across the world. But I, I think, you know, having having spent the last couple of weeks here in Bangladesh, that there's no question but that the, the um, aid workers on the ground um, care, but you know, very much about the people that they're they're trying to bring um, assistance to at the moment. This is truly a, a desperate situation and and whilst there are certainly um, risks that I think I think need to be considered from the, the very beginning about how to balance aid for the new refugees with um, the support needed for the really already desperately poor um, local community here in Cox's Bazaar and also refugees um, from Myanmar, some of whom have been here since as, as long as 1992. Um, you know, it's important that the aid that's given to the new arrivals doesn't create um, resentments and, and tensions with, with the host community and, and older refugees. You know, these are, these are issues to be considered, but I, I do think that, you know, everybody here trying to deliver it or in general, the delivery of aid and support here at the moment is in recognition of, of a truly desperate situation. I mean, people are dying on their way here. They're, they're dying after after getting here. And if, if there isn't a rapid response in, in terms of um, improving the hygiene conditions, I think there's a, a real risk that, um, you know, there'll be disease epidemics. And I'm hearing that from, you know, professional medics working here. Um, and I think just basic need for food, shelter and, and clean water is, is vital. What about for the children? I mean, what's, what's the most immediate concern for camps right now? In terms of the um, impact of this crisis on children, absolutely, that's a, a key issue. And there are many, many matters of, of concern. Um, children account for around 60% of, of the refugees. And, and there are, you know, many dangers um, posed to them by, by the situation. Um, Rakhine is, is a desperately poor area um, at the best of times and, and many of the children arriving here will have been um, malnourished even before they set out on the, on the very arduous journey that many of them have made to, to reach Bangladesh. So in terms of risk of starvation, um, you know, that this is a real, real concern. Obviously, children are, are prone to disease, um, you know, they're vulnerable to disease and they're, you know, I, I mentioned the, the terrible health conditions here. There's also um, the situation that children are arriving and in the chaos they're being separated from their parents. You know, there's there's a real concern about the risk of, of child trafficking um, and also just children being vulnerable to the 
the conditions of, of, of being in a camp where hundreds of thousands of strangers all, all around them. Um, so th these are just some of the concerns um, that, that people working here with the, the refugee um, new refugee community are, are trying to address. Is this likely to spur other issues? An epidemic, for example, we've seen cholera uh, being spread and even polio return in these camps. Yes, absolutely. I was speaking to um, representatives from um, Médecins Sans Frontières that were working in the field, and, and that was a, a concern that they, they raised. I think, you know, given the, the conditions on the ground here, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine that won't happen unless, you know, very urgent um, improvements are, are made in terms of sanitation um, and... You know, um, I think there has been work done to, to immunize children against certain diseases, but it's, it's really a dreadful situation. That was Fiona McGregor. You can find her articles on the Uhingya crisis in The National as she continues to cover it this week. Now we come back to the region, to a country where not a lot of news breaks, but has a deep history and one of the most beautiful landscapes in the Gulf. Amman, although one of the oldest established countries in the Arab world, the Sultanate is undergoing some difficulties with its youth. The Ministry of Social Affairs has shown that crimes committed by minors in Oman this year are expected to rise, adhering to a steady trend. How will the country deal with what could be the beginning of a youth delinquency problem? Salah al-Shaybani, our correspondent in Oman, has come to us with the story. The example you gave in the story was of a man waking up to his car being the subject of car theft. Is petty crime the main concern here or is there more? Well, it's not the main concern, but it shows that delinquency crimes in Oman is increasing about 7% in the last 10 years. Now, people like my subject, which I wrote in the National, is that you've got streets where children are bored, and especially after school. Uh, the school closes around uh, 1.30, 2 o'clock. Uh, they mm -hmm. don't have anything to do. Mm. So instead of, of actually engaging something um, which is useful to them, they just uh, out of boredom, they go and cause uh, problems, um, um, uh, chaos, um, kind of uh, um, fight, um, if you like, uh, uh, breaking uh, properties of people. Mm. For them, it's just fun. It's just being cool. Mm. That's all, the whole problem here. I mean, how is the police dealing with this? Well, because they're, 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 they're minors uh, between the age of 10 uh, to, to 15, 16, yeah. uh, they can't jail them, but um, uh, what they do, uh, they actually call the parents, um, and uh, the sentencing is that uh, they have to do community work, mm. which is like um, uh, cleaning the beaches uh, and helping with charities, just to instill uh, some kind of value in young people to make sure that um, they are now responsible of something much more important than just vandalism. Is that a new uh, policy or have they been doing it for some years now? And I mean, have you seen, have, have, do they have any data to show that it's been working? Um, this is new. I mean, um, um, uh, before the children were let go um, from the parents who can promise that uh, they never uh, go back to, 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 to the bedways. But um, in community work, uh, it's been introduced um, in the last two years as kind of punishment uh, or kind of uh, uh, making sure that these children, um, they understand um, um, the consequences of uh, vandalism. But, I mean, why, 
Salih, is there a, a growth in the youth delinquency problem? It, it, it's obviously becoming um, more of an issue with every coming year. So, so why now? There's a breakup of the Omani traditional system in family. Uh, many years ago, 20, 30 years ago, um, the, the men, the, the father will go out and, and, and walk and looking after the family, and the mother will stay and look after the children. But uh, with um, uh, education and uh, uh, awareness, yeah, uh, mothers now, they go to work as well because of, of, of as I said, education, yeah. So um, the, if you like the professionalism of women, women are going to work more than before. And then, as I said in my article now, about uh, 70% of uh, married women now go to work in comparison about 30, 20 years ago. So there's nobody at home, uh, um, 8 to 5 or 8 to 4 job, um, so these children around that time, around between 2 to 4 to 5, when there's nobody at home, uh, they're, looking, they're being looked after housemaid, so they're pretty much um, on their own. That's the reason why there's, a, there's an increase in that, yeah. mainly because, because now mothers are working. And this is a problem that we're experiencing actually across the Arab world, where uh, both parents are working, and there is maybe exactly. a fear of... Uh, you know, lack of upbringing in in, in children and in, in the youth. Uh, but I mean, is it so? Where does the responsibility lie? I mean, is, is it on the schools to keep them engaged for the extra few hours before the parents come home? I don't think we should blame the school or the environment around them. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's parents. Yeah, because parents are responsible to look after their children, the well-being of their children, to make sure they they actually engaged in something useful. But um, at the same time, um, I think uh, um, the government, maybe because one of the, of the, of the psychologists I talked to, so these children, uh, when, when, when they finish school after 2 o'clock, uh, maybe the government need to consider to build, um, say, um, um, uh, sport uh, facilities, uh, like gyms or, or football or tennis or, 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 or best, uh, um, um, basketball. So, so in, the, in the own community, at the moment, uh, in Oman, we've got uh, these facilities, but uh, there are big facilities. Said in one region there'd be only two or three facilities, but I think uh, what they need, uh, the government, is to build uh, uh, in the neighborhood uh, these sports facilities, where, where where young children can go and engage themselves uh, in uh, sports um, engagement like football, basketball, and the rest. Yeah, to keep them busy in the afternoon. And if that doesn't happen, and youth delinquency uh, keeps rising, I mean, is this does this have the potential of turning into a more serious problem? Could these youth eventually grow up and then start committing more serious crimes? Potentially, uh, it, it will, it could, uh, will be, right? Uh, you can't predict um, uh, the future what it is uh, because it's growing about 7% here. At the moment, uh, uh, this vandalism is petty. But then if it's not controlled, yes, it, it could lead to a serious problem. Uh, unless these measures are taken, either, either the mother's... Um, the stay at home, which is impossible because you can't educate your women and then ask them to stay home. But the only solution now is uh, actually maybe education to children uh, to make sure that uh, they are brought back uh, to, 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 to the values, uh, the social values, or the government needs to engage them in sports uh, engagement. So what you're saying is that this, this almost feels like a breakdown in the value system, in the family system in Oman. Exactly, yeah, and that's mainly to do with uh, education and, and uh, the level of... Uh, because uh, before, um, the, the, the inflation in Oman was very, very low, 
but because of high inflation, it forces now both parents to go to work. So it's also about uh, economic reason as, as well, mm. because uh, uh, young parents, uh, most of them are educated privately, and they want their children also to be educated privately. So there's a pressure also on financial to make sure that uh, there's enough money coming into the family so children can be looked after properly. Education-wise, there's no problem at all. It's only about what they do when they are free. It's boredom. So this is a, uh, it's an issue which is... Um, needs uh, to be taken, but um, I'm not sure how it's going to be, done, uh, to be done. But then, as I said, the two solutions are either the mothers must stay, must stay in, they'll go to work, which is, at the moment is, is, is almost impossible because mothers won't stay at home, or the government needs to, uh, to get them uh, occupied. Finally, Apple brings us one step closer to the future, at least their idea of what the future must be. Apple Pay has finally made it to the UAE. The mobile payment system, or digital wallet, lets users who own Apple products use their phones or watches to pay at places that support it. John Everington, deputy business editor and resident phone expert, joins us today to explain some of the details on how the Apple Pay system will work in the UAE. It feels like the UAE is seriously picking up its pace with its digital economy. You have Souk blowing up, Noon's announcement, uh, now digital wallets. So, I mean, wh- what's going on? Uh, why is this such big news for the UAE? It's it, it's a continuation of a trend that you're seeing elsewhere, NASA, really. I mean, uh, payment systems like Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, Google Pay, if you look in international markets, they're gradually gaining, gaining traction um, sort of, I mean, throughout the world, really. And so, I mean, really coming to the UAE, it's the sort of the next evolution, it's the next step. So it's, I mean, it's a very interesting scenario where we have a, this market in the UAE where we where, where everybody has smartphones. And I mean, people are very digitally switched on. Um, if you look at the sort of the digital economy going on here, and I mean, people are very comfortable. I mean, you've got a young population. As I said, all of us have got smartphones. We're increasingly getting used to sort of like doing things on our mobiles, on our smartphones, mm-hmm. whether that's whether that's ordering lunch, whether that's ordering a, um, an Uber, um, all sorts of things, you name it, we're um, sort of we're becoming much more mobile and smartphone-led these days. Mm-hmm. And so Apple Pay, it's the sort of the latest evolution of that, really. Mm-hmm. So going from just ordering things, linking it to our credit cards, to actually being able to use our phones to actually pay for things in, sh- in stores. You mentioned the other payment systems, Samsung's uh, equivalent and whatnot, but it almost feels like Apple has a special place uh, in the UAE. I remember a couple of years ago when they launched, they did so under their very own special set of circumstances. Yep. I mean, do you think that's the case, that the UAE, uh, you know, kind of holds a special uh, spot for, for Apple? <laughs> I think it does. I mean, it, I mean, so, I mean, so many markets kind of hold a special spot for Apple. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, coming here a number of years ago for the first time, very much it was BlackBerry at the time. Um, but then so like Apple has kind of like taken over and taken taken that sort of uh, that place in people's hearts, even though people still do like BlackBerry very much these mm-hmm. days. Um, what we've seen with so many technologies over the years, so many advances um, in terms of consumer technology is that Apple will take an idea that's uh, that's been popular or maybe maybe actually that hasn't been popular, um, such as the smartphone, mm-hmm. such as the tablet. Um, smartphones and tablets were, were out long before Apple kind of launched the iPhone and uh, the iPad. But what Apple did was that they came, they waited a little bit of time and they launched their own product. They put their own particular spin on it. Um, they really sort of worked very, very hard on the, on the user experience and the branding experience. 
and um, it really sort of took off and it really sort of um, captured a place in people's hearts. Now, the very interesting thing is, is, I mean, as we've mentioned before, there have been these payment systems that have been launched here before. I mean, Samsung Pay has been out uh, for a number of months now. Uh, Beam uh, has been available um, on the market for quite some time. Also, you are starting to see the sort of the take up of contactless uh, card technology as well um, on a limited basis compared with uh, compared with other markets. Mm. It's going to be very interesting to see um, to see what impact Apple have. Um, it may well be that now that Apple are doing this payment system, uh, people will really adopt it much more um, than they than they did before. It's going to it's going to be a very interesting uh, uh, it's going to be a very interesting few months uh, to see to see how the service takes off. Another example of that was uh, the Qi wireless charging system. You know, it's wireless charging has been around in Android for years, but yep. until Apple implements it in their phones, then it starts mattering. And then you'll see, you know, Qi charging devices or charging stations all around. But I mean, is this more than just you know paying for your coffee with a, a, an <laughs> iPhone? Is there is are there more functions uses to it? It's very interesting. I mean, in the UK, uh, where I'm from. Uh, sort of going back there in the summer, you notice going particularly into the metro, for example, um, in the London Underground system, uh, you see a number of people who are actually, uh, instead of taking their, instead of using a ticket uh, on the smart card readers, they'll actually be using their phones instead. Mm -hmm. And they'll also be using their, their Apple Watch and I think their Android Watch as well. So what you, I mean, you don't need to select, take your ticket out of your wallet. You can just um, either, so if you've got your phone in your hand, which you will inevitably, because you'll be texting like first thing in the morning, you'll just put it on the reader and it'll let you go through. It'll, it'll debit your account, no problem. Same thing with your Apple Watch. Um, which you, I mean, even um, which is always on your wrist. You, you just basically take that, put it on the reader, and through you go. The interesting thing is, uh, we haven't seen anything from the RTA yet uh, um, at the time of this conversation. Um, one of the interesting things will be whether you can actually use uh, the Apple Watch to 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 use that on the Dubai Metro. It's it's applications like that. I mean, which for me, I mean, coming from Europe really sort of make this compelling case for services like uh, like Apple Pay, like Samsung Pay, um, not just going into like kind of getting a cup of coffee um, with your smartphone, but actually when you're out and about in a, in a transport system, uh, just being able to use uh, that functionality, that's that's a really interesting sort of use of the technology. Right. Because if it's only 12 establishments that have Apple Pay, you won't really be using it. It'll be kind of a novelty effect. But I mean, Six banks were announced to be, announced to be uh, working with Apple. That's Can right. we expect more? I think so. I mean, it'll be. Uh, it. I think the sort of the the banks they'll be using it to sort of try and stimulate digital payments, without a doubt. At the same time, it's a marketing uh, a tool for them as well, mm -hmm. just to have the sort of the latest technology. Uh, we saw this with Samsung Pay earlier on in the year. You had a number of banks who were kind of proudly sort of like saying that we're going to sort of like be launching Samsung, ten, um, Samsung Pay for our, all of our customers. Just really just to be seen in this digital economy that we're living in, and especially with, I mean, with millennials who are sort of so much um, more familiar with smartphone technology, really being seen to be a bank that supports the sort of the latest technology um, uh, so, such as Samsung Pay and now Apple Pay is is quite an important thing for them because they want to sort of like kind of make sure that they capture that sort of that millennial market without a doubt. I'd like to thank my guests Fiona McGregor, Salah Shebani, and John Everington for being on another episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'd also like to thank our producer Kevin Jeffers. You can find this and all the other national podcasts such as Extra Time and Business Extra on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your episodes from. 
I've been Nasa Al-Wesmi. Thank you for listening and goodbye.